Section twenty one of Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. Part one. Chapter twenty one. Most people speak and think of the Aborigines as a lazy, dirty, useless, unreliable lot. But, as I have tried to show, it is unfair to pass judgment upon them because of what they appear to be now. They were not always so, and the white man is accountable for their deterioration. He taught them to drink and to smoke, and to feel that it was not worth calling up sufficient energy to make a canoe, a vessel for water, or even a hut to sleep in. As the natives got more and more into the ways of the white man, they would often lie huddled up in the rain, rather than trouble to make a hut to cover them. And so they went down and down, travelling on the path which led to laziness, disease, and degradation. Poor souls! They did not teach their children to do as they had done, and the children never really knew what the old life had been. How different a native was in those old times! He was full of manly vigour and energy, his life was a joy to him, and the search for his food one long pastime. It is useless to think that we can ever blot out the injury we have done by mission schools and unnatural teaching. To show that there were besides murderers really worthy characters among the aborigines, it may interest some readers to hear of Dalaipi, a fine old black fellow my father knew. When the latter was a small boy he used to play with this man's son, a little chap called Dalengang, and Dalaipi himself was then nearly sixty years of age. Later, when father had been married some months and had decided upon the advice of Mr. Tiffin, the government architect, to take up land for cattle, he sought out Dalaipi and asked him if he knew of any country suitable for what he wanted. This old black fellow was the headman of the North Pine tribe and often came into Brisbane. He replied that there was plenty good tar ground at Madin, fishing net, the North Pine River railway bridge crossing. When father agreed to go look at it, Dalaipi was greatly pleased at the idea of him settling there and said, You take my son, Dalngang, with you. He will show you over my country, for he can ride, and any you pick on I will give you. I would go, but cannot ride, would tumble off. When you make up your mind to settle, I will go with you and protect you and your cattle, or any one belonging to you. So my father, a young man of about twenty-eight, journeyed forth with Dalengang to look at the place which was really to become his future home, though he did not know it. There he was to live for the rest of his lifetime and form the now well-known homestead, Marumba. This name, by the way, is the blackfellow's word for good. The two horsemen, the black man and the white, camped for the first night just where the latter's milking-shed now stands, and father was greatly taken with the country, which in those days looked so nice and green and open, and was covered with beautiful kangaroo grass a couple of feet high. The young fellow thought to himself what a pity it was he could not take it up. He knew it to be a portion of the white side run. Dalengang said to him, you take this fellow ground, belong to my father? 
and he was not at all reconciled to the fact when told that it already belonged to Mrs. Griffin, Captain Griffin's widow. After looking at North Pine, Father and Dalengang went on to the mouth of the Pine River, and then round to Humpybong and Deception Bay. From there they went to Caboolture, and always as they travelled they examined the country for miles round about. At the end of four days they found themselves on the old northern road, homeward bound, my father with his mind made up to obtain a map of the country, so that he could see which portions were still open to choose from. However, arriving at the North Pine Upper Crossing, Sidling Creek, they met a bullock dray loaded with cedar, making down the river towards the salt water, whence the timber was to be rafted to Brisbane. And who should be riding alongside the team that his man was driving but John Griffin, with a horse-pistol on either side of the pommel of the saddle, and a carbine hanging at his side. As soon as he saw father he called to him, "'Hello, Petrie, where the devil are you going?' "'I'm looking for a nice piece of country on which to put some cattle. Can you put me on to anything?' "'Yes, go down towards the mouth of the pine.' "'But that belongs to your mother.' The old lady will be only too pleased to give it to you. We can't keep a beast down there for the blacks. They run them into the swamps and spear them, then have great feasts. If any of us go down in that direction, we have always to be on our guard. That is the reason I am armed like this, touching his weapons. You never know when those black wretches may appear and tackle you. You had better go back to the station, Petrie, and see mother. I know you will get the land all right." My father, after some conversation, turned and went to Mrs. Griffin's station, where the old lady met him heartily, and asked him in for the night. When he told her what he had come for, she said she would be only too pleased to let him have that portion of her run. It was of no use to them. It was unsafe for any one to go down there, and they could do nothing with the cattle on account of the blacks. "'Yes, you can have it, certainly, but,' she added, would it be wise for a young man like you to settle in such a place? Would it be safe? Fancy Tom Petrie being afraid of the natives. Mrs. Griffin, he answered, if you are willing that I should take over the land, I shall not be afraid to settle there, as I can speak to the blacks in their own tongue, and know their ways, and will be all right. Very well, she said, I will go to town with you tomorrow, and make arrangements that you get the land. So it came about that the lawyer transferred ten sections over to my father, and the latter had ten square miles in his name. His boundary was from Sidling Creek down the coast right round to Humpybong. And now to return to Dalaipi. When everything had been finally settled, my father started from Brisbane in a boat to go to North Pine with rations, taking with him Dalaipi, Dalengang, and four other blacks. When they got to the mouth of Brisbane River, a fair wind was blowing toward St. Helena, and the natives suggested that the party should run across to the island and camp there for the night. They looked forward to a feast of dugong. To this my father agreed. At that time St. Helena was nearly all scrub, and some white men were living there who caught dugong and boiled them down for the oil for Dr. Hobbs. As luck had it, when the boat landed, a large creature had just been caught, so the darkies had a great feast, and father also enjoyed some of the meat. Next day, on their departure, 
the men of the island gave them a quantity of flesh so the blacks were in great glee as dugong was a favoured dish and this meant a supply for several days the wind again favourable took the party to the pine up which they travelled as far as yebri creek and camped there next day my father looked about for a suitable place in which to build a humpy and picked upon almost the spot where his barn stands now near the n c railway line with the help of the blacks he cleared a couple of acres and then teaching them to split slabs and posts and rails he got a hut and stockyard built whenever he had occasion after this to go for a few days to brisbane he found on his return that everything was all right just as already related the man who took charge of the humpy was dalaipi and the two young blacks mentioned who watched the cattle were lads of about seventeen one being dalangang and the other dipari a brother of dick ben dick ben was one of those concerned in the murder of mr gregor and mrs shannon these two young fellows were very useful their master taught them to do all sorts of things about his place and they were bright and quick at learning and could do their work as well as any white man later on when he had a house built to which his wife could come these boys took turn about in travelling to brisbane with a pack-horse every week taking in little fresh things from the country to mr petrie senior and returning with supplies for the station and nothing ever went wrong dalaipi was my father says a faithful and good old black to me he was a great old fisherman and used to keep us supplied with fish crabs and oysters and in the season when turkey eggs were found in the scrub on the pine brought these as an offering he was the only black fellow i knew who neither smoked nor drank dalaipi was not an extra tall black fellow but was good and very reverent looking and carried himself with an air as though he were some one of importance as indeed he was for his word was law among the tribe and he was looked up to by every one he and his son dalangang were very gentle and courteous and never seemed to join in with a rough joke dalaipi's wife also was a tall splendid-looking woman with the carriage of a queen she it was who used to follow my mother on her walks abroad for fear harm should come to the white lady when the latter had gone far enough or with her child had approached some sacred burial place the djinn would quicken her pace and say come back now missus in a beseeching sort of voice which my mother is afraid she did not always pay heed to my father has had many a yarn with poor old dalaipi on the subject of the murders committed by the blacks and this man told his white friend much the same as the murderers did themselves before the white fellow came dalaipi said we wore no dress but knew no shame and were all free and happy there was plenty to eat and it was a pleasure to hunt for food then when the white man came among us we were hunted from our ground shot poisoned and had our daughters sisters and wives taken from us could you blame us if we killed the white man if we had done likewise to them would they not have murdered us but my father said the blackfellows killed poor whites who never did them any harm that is nothing if a man of one tribe killed someone of a second tribe the first person in the former that the others came across was killed for revenge that is our law and besides 
look what a lot of blacks who did no harm were shot by the native police, and what a number were poisoned at Kilcoy. Another thing the white man did was to teach us to drink, smoke, swear, and steal. They did not teach you to steal? Yes, they did. They stole our ground where we used to get food, and when we got hungry and took a bit of flour or killed a bullock to eat, they shot us or poisoned us. All they give us now for our land is a blanket once a year. But, Dalaipi, did not the white man settle the missionaries at Nanda to make you better, and teach you not to kill, steal, or tell lies? Did they not show you how to work for them and so earn a living? Yes, the missionaries were settled at Nanda, and what did we learn from them? The young blacks got to know too much of the whites' ways and habits, too much of what was right and wrong. Before any white people came here, we never stole anything from one another, but divided everything we had, and were always happy. But what about when you beat the poor gins and often killed them for a mere trifle, and sometimes you sneak upon an unsuspecting black fellow in another tribe and kill him? It is our law that a gin should be killed when she steps over anything belonging to us, or for other things. And if a man dies or gets killed by fighting with one of his own tribe, we don't blame the man who seemed to kill him, but find out the real murderer by chopping the dead man's bones together, which always crack at the right name. You have seen that done many a time, and you know. Yes, that's all right, Dalaipi. The missionary and white fellow tell us that if a black fellow kill a white man, they catch him and kill him by putting a rope around his neck. And if a white man kill another white man, they do just the same. That is your law. Well, the black fellow is different. We do not blame the man we see killing the other, but go by the cracking of the dead man's bones. And when we get the chance, we do not put a rope around the murderer's neck, but kill him with a waddy, a spear, or a tomahawk. That is the difference, and we do not see any harm in killing that way. It was our law before the white fellow came among us to teach us all sorts of things. Why did not the white man stop in his own country, and not come here to hunt us about like a lot of kangaroo? If they had kept to their own land, we would not have killed them. No, that is true, Dalaipi, but you see the white man likes to go and find new country and bring bullocks and horses and grow potatoes and corn. Then you get plenty to eat. No fear. They won't give us anything. They are too greedy. They put corn and potatoes in our ground that they took from us at Eagle Farm a long time ago, to tempt us when we were hungry. There were several shot there stealing corn. You mind Dalanchin, who was lame in one leg? Well, he was shot in the hip with a ball while taking corn. That was what made him lame. Well, you know that was not right. He was stealing it. I don't see that. The white fellow stole the ground, and I don't see the harm in taking a few cobs of corn or a dilly full of potatoes when one is hungry. We should not be shot like birds for it. Dalaipi, you see it one way and the whites another, that's certain. You say the white fellow don't tell lies. I know plenty who did. They would get the blacks to bring them fish, young parrots and all sorts of things. Then, in place of giving them what was promised, they took the things, and with, Be off, you black devil, gave them a hit on the side of the head. What do you call that but stealing? 
That is the way a good many whites were killed. Let us see a white man today and speak to him, and then even though we do not see him again for a long, long time, we know him and remember what he did. Now, Dalaipi, I see I cannot make you see the right from the wrong. Tell me how it is you never drink grog nor smoke. When the blackfellow took to drinking rum, that you call it, they would go mad and beat one another with waddies and cut themselves with knives. Sometimes they would kill their friends in a quarrel. I knew if I took it I would go mad too, so I would never touch it. They used to try me to take it, but I never would. I tried the tobacco, but it made me very sick and I would never try it again. Dalaipi, how is it that the blacks never tried to kill me? Because your mother and all your people were kind to us and would always give us something to eat, and you were a small little boy growing up with the black boys who used to go about your father's house. In those early days we were not allowed to go near the croppies, the native name for prisoners, but could always see you. You learned our tongue, our ways and secrets, and you never broke our laws nor ill-treated us, but were always kind. We would do anything for you, and looked on you as one of ourselves. If all the whites were like you, there would not have been so many killed. In spite of conversations like this, Dalaipi was not a man of many words. He would never speak much unless questioned. His English was broken, of course. He and his never became aggressive, nor troublesome, in the way of asking for tobacco, etc., as some did. As I have said, Dalaipi was the headman of the North Pine tribe, which numbered about two hundred, and he was supposed to own the kippa ring there. He was looked on as the great rainmaker for his part of the country. At one time it was rather dry, and the water-holes were getting low, so my father said to him, You make the rain come and fill the holes again, Dalaipi. He answered, By and by me make him come. About two days after this it got very cloudy, and Dalaipi turned up and said, Me go now and make him rain come up. So, taking his tomahawk with him, he went down to the river just above where the ballast pit is now, where there was a point of rock and a deep hole. Here the end of the rainbow with its spirit, Tagan, was supposed to go down into the water. Dalaipi jumped in with his tomahawk and went under, coming up again with a small cut on his head which was bleeding. On his way back to the house, his master met him and asked how he had come by the cut. Ah, I have been feeling about for Tagan and hit my head longa mudlow, stone. That day a shower fell, which soon cleared off, however, so my father asked, How is it you didn't make more rain, Dalaipi? That not enough. The old fellow replied, Ah, I only cut em Tagan half through. By and by me go down and make plenty more come. So after this his master did not tease him again. At that time, during summer, thousands of flying foxes camped in the scrub on the pine, and the blacks used to catch great numbers, almost living entirely on them now and then. Always in winter they disappeared, so one day my father asked Dalaipi where the foxes went in winter. They go down, he said, under the water, in that hole where the tagan stops where me make him rain. 
They stop there till the hot weather comes back, then they come up again and go longer, cabin, scrub. He firmly believed this, and so did all the others. Poor old Dalaipi wished once to go for a change to Tugulawa, Bulimba, to be with some of his friends for a week or so. He came to his master and said, You let me go, me not be long away. I been telling the other black fellows to mind you till I come back. But the poor old man never came back. He took a cold and died there. When the news reached the pine of his death, there was great lamenting and cutting of heads. He was well known all over the country. When my father went as a boy to the Bonnyi feast on the Black Hall with the blacks, he was introduced as belonging to Dalaipi's tribe. On another occasion he went with Mr. Pettigrew to Maryborough to look round the country and notice the timber. Mr. Pettigrew wished to start a sawmill, and he knew if my father accompanied him he would be saved trouble with the blacks. Two young blacks they took with them, Dalangang and Kerwali, meaning split. The latter was afterwards known as Old King Sandy, and he died at Wynnum in 1900. In those days Maryborough consisted of only a few houses. Mr. Pettigrew and his companion walking along a road there came in sight of two gins coming towards them, and my father remarked, When they get within speaking distance I will have a bit of fun. So he called to them, Yin, one a young man? Where are you going? They jumped at this in great excitement, saying one to the other that here was a white man who could speak their tongue, so father had a yarn with them. That night he, with Mr. Pettigrew, slept on board the steamer, and next morning the wharf was black with natives come to see the white man who could talk to them. Again he was introduced as belonging to Dalaipi's tribe by the two blacks accompanying them, and Dalangang, being Dalaipi's son, was also made much of. The whole crowd volunteered to go with the white men and show them timber, but only one man and his wife were taken. The party went up the Susan River and to Fraser Island and Tin Can Bay, and they saw plenty of timber. Mr. Pettigrew afterwards started a sawmill at Maryborough. My father says he was never afraid that the blacks would do him harm, but in those early days he felt he would far sooner trust them than most of the whites. Durham Boy, the man who lived so long with the blacks, said, when he heard my father was going out to settle in the bush, You are a foolish young man to go. As soon as you get some rations out, the blacks will kill you for them. I know their ways, as I ought, having lived with them so long. Oh, well, was the answer. If that happens, I won't be the first white man they've killed. Small comfort, one would think. He adds now, though, in place of killing me, they were very kind, and I am alive yet. In the year 1824, before Brisbane Town had been founded, and in the days when Humpy Bong was Queensland penal settlement, a party of men journeyed up the then unnamed and obscure North Pine River, and entering Yebri Creek, below the homestead Marumba, landed and proceeded to make a camp. Having come from the only part of Queensland inhabited by white men, the penal settlement at Humpybong, they were most probably soldiers in charge of a gang of prisoners, and were evidently in search of timber. On the south side of Yebri Creek, near a portion of it my father has since spanned by a bridge, and in what is now known as his lower paddock, 
which latter is bounded on one side by the North Coast Railway Line, lay at that time a limb blown from a bloodwood tree. This limb must have been dead and dry, and so have lain on the ground some time, for the prisoners started to cut it up for firewood, some with a cross-cut saw and one with an axe. Hardly had they begun operations, however, when natives who had noticed their approach, and who probably looked upon everything in the vicinity as their special property, stole upon the intruders, and succeeded in making off with the axe. Instead of waiting to reason out the case, the white man fired upon the blacks, shooting one unfortunate dead, then made off to the boat and started down the creek on their return to Humpybong. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. The natives, determining upon revenge, watched their opportunity, and subsequently killed two of the prisoners at Humpybong. Almost forty-five years ago, when my father first settled at North Pine, it was the honest old Dalaipi who showed his young master this fallen limb with its markings, a chip taken out by an axe, also a cut from a saw, some two inches deep. And he it was also who related the story of its strong link with the past. Ten years ago my father showed the limb to Mr. William Pettigrew, whose name is well known in Brisbane, and whose knowledge of timber makes interesting some remarks he writes in a late communication, re that bloodwood limb. The marks of the axe and the cross-cut saw were quite distinct when Mr. Pettigrew saw the limb and heard the story, and he now sends along a copy of some notes jotted down at the time. 29th of December, 1893 T. Petrie has a fence up thirty years. Posts of this, Bloodwood, sound. Another fence up twenty-five years, sound. Rails, ironbark, replaced twice. Had been beaten by white ants. A branch of a tree lying at Petrie's was cut in 1824 or 25 by a party in a boat when a black stole an axe and was shot dead. Whites cleared out. Mr. Pettigrew adds that he saw the tree standing from which the branch had fallen, and he further remarks that the limb was evidently lying on the ground at the time the scars were made. That limb, he says, had laid on the ground for sixty-eight years in 1893. What would be the age of that tree in 1824 or 25, when the limb was blown off? People in West Australia have been boasting of some of their durable timbers, but I think the bloodwood will beat any they have got. At the present time, October 1904, this interesting bloodwood limb is still in existence, and its wood is perfectly sound. Some few years ago, however, bushfires charred and disfigured the surface of it, and there are now no distinguishing marks, save its unaltered position, it being too heavy to move. The parent tree also lies prone nearby, having been burnt down, probably at the time the limb was disfigured. The tree, when the branch was blown from it, must have been a good size judging from the limb, which is no baby one. And as I have said, the branch, when the prisoners started to cut into it, was then dead wood, so who knows what length of time prior to 1824 it lay on the ground. The fences Mr. Pettigrew mentions are yet in existence, the posts still being sound. Some few of the latter have recently been taken up, and are as solid as the day they were put in, nearly forty-five years ago. 
the Brisbane blacks call the bloodwood tree, or eucalyptus corymbosa, buna, and the tree mentioned grew on clay subsoil. My father has a dam not far from where it stood. In concluding this subject, I may say that the word yebri was the native's name for a portion of the creek under discussion, and meant put or lay it down. My father gave this name to the authorities, and it has been generally accepted. With regard to the name Humpybong, we are told that that was the name given to the deserted place at Redcliffe by the blacks. They called it Umpi Bong, meaning dead houses. Now, Bong was their word for dead, but Ngudur, after tea-tree bark, stood generally for a hut or a house on the coast, hence I am led to believe, as Humpy is of Australian origin, that it is one of those words coined by the Australian white man, and adopted by the blacks. End of Part 1 Chapter 21